I'm from the upside down part of the world. <laughs> so I'm going to explore this afternoon some things, some consequences of the Reformation that pose a distinct challenge to us. So my talk won't be as warm or fuzzy and also has far fewer pictures. I've got four. <laughs> it's a commonplace for historians to see the Reformation as unleashing chaos. Many historians have commented on this. One of them recently wrote about the English Reformation, that religious unity was widely seen as absolutely essential. How could a movement that claimed to be from God have such divisive effects? And historians have noted how the Reformation divided Europe, split communities, made government troublesome and led to incredible violence. Two relatively recent books have taken this concept of exploring the breadth and the depth of change that the Reformation has provoked or unleashed. And there's the first of my four. Alistair McGrath's Christianity's Dangerous Idea, written by a former atheist who studied science and in the course of studying science realised that an atheistic worldview could not explain what he discovered as a scientist. He became a Christian. Now is an ordained Anglican priest, professor of science and religion at Oxford University and holds a mere three doctorates in molecular biophysics, in theology and in intellectual history. He is without doubt a leading theologian, an apologist, and he's also an extremely articulate opponent of the aggressive so-called new atheists such as Dawkins, Dennett and Hitchens. I want to explore some of the ideas in this book and another book by Brad S. Gregory. Gregory's book, The Unintended Reformation, is written by a, a Catholic. Gregory is a Catholic scholar. He is a professor at Notre Dame University, a specialist in Reformation history, and has won multiple awards and critical acclaim for his historical works. And I read both of these books with interest, certainly not with total agreement, but there were points where I thought their insights were valuable, and I thought that there were points where their arguments were something that we should pay attention to. Um, sometimes because we might agree, and sometimes because we might not. So first of all, let's have a quick look at some of the ideas in, um, in McGrath's book. The dangerous idea of McGrath's title is as the blurb says, the radical idea that individuals could interpret the Bible for themselves. And it spawned a revelation, uh, revolution, and a revelation, that is still being played out in the world stage today. In other words, 
when Luther took the idea of sola scriptura, the priesthood of all believers, the right of individuals to read the word for themselves and be convinced in their own minds, he didn't merely change the shape of theology, the organisation of the church, but it has influenced every aspect of our lives right across the board. As he says, since every Protestant has the right to interpret the Bible, a wide range of interpretations cannot be avoided. And since there is no centralised authority within Protestantism, this proliferation of opinions cannot be controlled. I've asked both my church history classes last and this semester, how many Christian denominations are there in the world today? And if those present will be silent for a moment, any guesses? How many different uh, Christian denominations are there in the world? It's, it's well over 2,000. This is the one church and one body that Christ established. And a large proportion of those 2,000 are Protestant. So it, it's, a, it's a fairly commonplace observation to make that the Protestant Ref, uh, Reformation unleashed this torrent of denominations. And again, he says, who has the right to decide what is orthodox and what is heretical? It's easy in the Catholic Church. The Pope says so. But if each person in Protestantism is a priest before God, the priesthood of all believers, if each believer is expected to read the word it is probable that each believer may come up with nuances, if not larger, differences from each other. Who is the authority for many early Protestants? This was a dangerous idea that opened the floodgate to a torrent of distortion, misunderstanding and confusion. So, McGrath then focuses on some characteristically Protestant questions. First of all, Sola Scriptura. Everyone agrees that Sola Scriptura is at the heart of the Reformation, is at the heart of Protestant thinking. It is not negotiable. The question is, how does it work in practice? McGrath, on just one issue, identifies at least 19 distinct Protestant responses, answers to the questions that Charles Darwin evolutionary theory has provoked. 19 responses. How do we do it? Uh, we have many Christians who start with the Bible and end up with different ideas, uh, most notably the first reformers, Luther and Zwingli, ended up calling each other some rather dreadful names in language I can't repeat in this company because of their differences in the interpretation of Scripture. A second characteristically Protestant question is, what is biblical? Does biblical mean anything that isn't in contradiction of the Bible, or does it mean only that which is endorsed by the Bible? The first allows things to occur, practices, which aren't specifically mentioned. The second forbids 
anything that isn't spoken of in the Bible. Thirdly, what is the relationship between the Bible and tradition? And this is a question we can't avoid. Luther himself frequently spoke of the Bible and St. Augustine as the pillars of his faith. But he was very, very clear that the only reason he was a champion of Augustine was that he felt Augustine's statements were consistent with the Bible. In other words, in his mind, tradition was permissible only as it agreed with Scripture, in which case it could be brought into the argument. But nevertheless, what is the role of tradition? Next, which parts of Scripture are literal and which are allegorical or metaphoric? Now, we agree, for example, that the book of Revelation should not be read in a purely literal manner. It is stuffed full of images which need to be decoded. But then we have some who go, as the scripture ends, so it begins. The first book is also metaphoric, which needs to be decoded. How far do we go? Are the gospels metaphors? Which parts of the Bible are universal and which are time or cultural specific? And this one isn't going to go away either. Because one person's diktat from God is another person's cultural representation of how he came across in a particular context. And finally, an issue which has come up in many of our speakers the issue of authority. Where does authority reside in a system that promotes the priesthood of all believers? And how do you deal with people who differ from you so far that you perceive their beliefs to be dangerous? So here we have a dangerous idea which has unleashed processes that makes it difficult to deal with dangerous ideas. So, Protestantism has turned to various authorities. Now, obviously, the first main and authentic authority for Protestantism is what? Sola Scriptura. The problem is, people based on Sola Scriptura can end up on opposite sides of the fence. Then how do you decide? And so... Protestantism has typically pulled in various kinds of authorities to buttress its particular stand from this side or that side on Sola Scriptura. And the first one that, that uh, denominations have lent on is creeds. Here's what we believe and we're going to defend it. If you don't believe that, you're out. Another one has been influential theologians and preachers, particularly founding figures, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, even more recently Billy Graham, figures like this that you can, you can hang on and take their writings and, and say, these are the authorities, these are the great minds of our faith and uh, we'll, we'll use them to arbitrate. Another way is to ordain the clergy, to say the clergy has a special role 
and they have authority to decide what is right or wrong. Does it sound dangerously familiar, some of these issues? Fourthly, the community of believers is another approach that Protestants have taken. Well, yep, okay, it's all right for individuals to think what they think, but let's let the community of believers determine the boundaries, determine which understanding is correct. Then there are special authorities, people who have a direct line to God. And this is something that our denomination is familiar with. Prophets. And it raises the question, how do we use the words and writings of prophets as authority? And this is a really, really good question because Ellen White is authoritative. In which ways is she authoritative? She herself insisted that her writings should be used in particular ways. And one of the ways not to use her was to win theological arguments. She wanted sola scriptura. And I would like to say that we have been true to her words. But that would make me an occasional liar. (laughs) Then there's ecclesiastical tradition. I don't need to say much more. And and quite frankly, although we as a church are very clear about where we stand, there is a temptation for us to lean on each of these at times. Is that true? A temptation that we need to think through very clearly. Because while each of these can help inform, if they in any way get between us and the Word, we've committed the very problem that we are protesting against. So with this dangerous idea unleashed, as as McGrath explains, what are some of the key issues that Protestantism at large faces? And he identifies the, the concept of unity in the face of various challenges. And in fact, Protestantism at the moment isn't really heading towards unity. It's it's fracturing more and more. Because for Protestantism, we used to have a known and common enemy. It was the Catholic Church. So we knew who we were fighting against. But lately, as several presentations have pointed out, The spotlight's gone off the Catholic Church as Protestantism's chief foe. And now, increasingly, we see ourselves as battling secularism and Islam as being greater threats to our faith. And this, ironically, has opened up the path for dialogue with Catholicism. Since we have common enemies, can we work together? Should we work together? Interesting question. Which is the greater danger? And then we have Catholic calls for unity based on the claim that the issues that have caused the Reformation are now over. It's just a misunderstanding. 
un petit malentendu, as the French say, which is even more, I don't know, it, it just makes it smaller than the English phrase, just a misunderstanding. Un petit malentendu is, well, you know, we had this minor disagreement and now we've put it aside. McGrath, as you might expect, being both a scientist and a theologian, has seen the Reformation as a key to the scientific revolution. It is common today, particularly for Protestants, particularly for Protestants in America, to see science and religion at war. Most historians of science absolutely and utterly disagree with that statement. They say there is no inevitable conflict between science and religion. And many of these are atheists. They say, actually, the reason we had a scientific revolution was because we had a Protestant one. It is Protestantism that has driven science. And it's triggered by Protestantism's hermeneutic. The hermeneutic that said, let's read the Bible for what it is, let's strip away all the metaphors and all the presuppositions we've had and see what the words say that change the way they view nature. Instead of saying that nature is a metaphor for the heavenly kingdom, they said, let's look at nature as nature. And so began modern science, driven by their conviction, reflected in the opening lines of that most wonderful book, Steps to Christ, that God is the author of both the Bible and of nature. So they shifted from reading the Bible in metaphoric and symbolic terms to more literal and natural. Similarly, they also read nature that way. And it led to, it's a term used by historians, the desacralization or the disenchantment of nature. That is, nature was no longer this wondrous, mysterious thing. It was something we could begin to understand and even begin to control and manipulate, a product of the Protestant Reformation. He reiterates the fundamental Protestant principle, and that is, I don't know your level of comfort with this statement, that all interpretations of the Bible must be regarded as provisional, not final. Let me say that again. That all interpretations of the Bible must be regarded as provisional, not final. Where do we stand on that as Adventists? He also says, the history of Protestantism has been one of constantly revising and re-evaluating existing interpretations of the Bible. If that hadn't occurred, would our church exist? No. Our church exists because people were prepared to question, to study, to investigate, to go deeper than the last generation had dared or the previous group had dared. In fact, this principle is so important it is embedded in the opening statement to our fundamental beliefs which read, revision of these statements may be expected at a general conference session when the church is led by the Holy Spirit to one of two things, a fuller understanding of Bible truth, which is an admission that there may be things we still don't know, and secondly, we find better language in which to express the teaching of God's holy word. In other words, we as human beings have created a statement of 28 beliefs. Are they sacred scripture? No. 
Sacred scripture is sacred scripture. Our beliefs are our best expression of them. For, for which we are intensely proud and intensely grateful. But we are aware that these statements come from humans and they are not to be compared with the words of God. He talks about the constantly changing nature of Protestantism and notes three directions in which it is moving simultaneously in the 21st century. One is towards fundamentalism. That is, shut up the gates, we're being invaded. Okay? Secondly, there's neo-evangelism, which says, we don't like what we see, but the only way we're going to change it is if we engage. So let's find points where we can engage and get involved. And the third one is revisionist, which says, oh, look at all these new ideas out there. Let's see how we can change Christianity to fit in with them. I have oversimplified all three positions. But then, I've only got three quarters of an hour. So that is McGrath in summary. It's a thick book. I haven't said everything he said. You'll be grateful. The other thick book, which I will also unfairly summarise, is The Unintended Reformation by a leading Catholic scholar. In this book, he traces how Protestantism has got out of hand and led to all sorts of incredibly dangerous things. And it's his tacit argument that if we'd only left things alone in the hands of the Catholic Church, we wouldn't be facing all the problems we are today. He has a little statement at the end which goes, that's not what I'm saying. But I often use a phrase, affirmation by denial. You know, when a young fellow goes around denying that he's actually interested in a particular girl and he keeps repeating it and you go, well, nobody asked, so why are you telling us? For all of that, it's not as if Gregory doesn't say some things that we might want to pay attention to. His first chapter is called Excluding God and he notes that one of the unintended, remember this is the unintended uh, reformation, One of the unintended consequences of the Reformation is that God has been taken out of public space. And that is true. He argues for restoring a biblical view of God as transcendent. And he goes into a lot of detail here. Uh, I could too, but I don't think we have time. Essentially, though, he comes to this statement, which I thought was quite interesting. God is radically different from the universe as a whole, which he did not fashion by ordering anything existent, but rather creating entirely ex nihilo. God's creative action proceeded neither by his necessity nor by chance, but from his deliberate love and as love. Such a God is literally unimaginable and incomprehensible. Do you like it? Why does he make such a point? He makes the point because part of the unintended reformation involves the consequences of the actions of two scholars, John Dunn Scottus and William of Ockham, and you've probably heard of both of them. Do you know how you've heard of Scottus? Have you ever heard of a dunce? Do you use that word here? If somebody's not real bright, they're a dunce. They wear a dunce cap. 
Well, the original dunce was Dun Scottus, and he was a famous scholar. But he came up with a brilliant idea that's been extremely damaging, so maybe the title's right. And his brilliant idea was the univocity of being. Got to use a big word every now and then. Univocity. What does it mean? Essentially, up until that point, Christians believed that God was not of the same order as his universe. And Scott has said, logically speaking, he must be the same thing as the universe. So he dragged God from outside the universe and made him first cause of the universe. That is, inside it, but instigator. And then William of Ockham reinforced it with his philosophy that God is like humans, like his creation. He is an actual being and ends. And as an ends, he has the same substance or is of the same kind as his creation. Okay? Now, what I love is how um, Gregory is able to blame the Reformation for these two medieval scholars. But their ideas have carried through. And actually, if you follow Gregory's argument, you can see the thread. Have you, have you heard of the theory of God of the gaps? It's, it's often used in, in uh, arguments about creation and evolution, that you know, as science gradually uncovers things, God is reduced to filling in the gaps that we don't know. God of the gaps only works if you believe Scottus and Ockham. If God is outside his universe, if he is greater than it, we can explain the entire universe and we haven't yet begun to approach God. Do you get the point? So I think Gregory just might have a point. And the fascinating thing is that most anti-evolution arguments carried on by Protestants begins based on Scottus and Ockham. We've conceded the high ground to our opponents and we've basically said you're going to win the argument because you're right. If you can prove it it happened naturally, then we don't need God in the process. Occam is famous for Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is the best one. I don't know. Even on that, an intelligent, all-powerful being made the world. It happened by incredibly random chance over billions of years. Which seems simpler and easier to you? But he goes on to notice that when Protestants started arguing with Catholics, it had the unintended effect of sidelining explicitly Christian claims about God in relationship to the natural world. So, how could you know anything? The theologians couldn't agree. Was there anything we could agree on? Yes, empirical observation, the rational mind. So, the only unifying way of studying the world was just by taking God out of the picture. And let's just look at things as intelligent beings. He argues that the Reformation conflict removed theology as an agreed means of explaining the world, leading only to scientific methods. He also uses the term the disenchantment of the world. Right? We're going to look at it scientifically. We're going to lose the sense of mystery and awe and wonder that comes with a creator God, that comes with um, having a divine being involved in, in our lives. And I think he's got a point. He says the Reformation overthrew a unifying, institutionalised worldview that diversely informed the whole of human life. Yes, I agree the Reformation overthrew that. I just happened to think it was a good thing. He says 
Against the intention of its protagonists, the Reformation ended more than a thousand years of Christianity as a framework for shared intellectual life in the Latin West. What was left as a means for understanding the natural world? Only reason, understood and exercised in ways that didn't depend on any contested Christian doctrines. And don't we see that in the world today? The universities, by and large, try to explain the world from a purely reasonable point of view. He argues modern atheism's intellectual bases remain what they were in the late Middle Ages. Nothing conceptually original, including Darwinian evolution, has been added for many centuries. That's a striking claim. Suggests that some of the, as I said, some of the arguments we're having about creation and evolution, we need to go back quite some time and rediscover a sound basis for having that argument because if we're doing it on uh, late medieval philosophy, we are going to be in real trouble. So that's his first chapter. That's the one I found the most striking. Not that I didn't find others interesting. His second chapter was how Protestantism relativized doctrines. So you see, Einstein's not terribly new. I'm not quite sure what the formula is, if it's theology and not physics, um, but it would be that. He argues Protestantism has led to a breakdown from an institutionalised worldview, a many-layered combination of beliefs and practices and institutions built over many centuries. He argues that was a good thing, not the Protestants changing it, but that build-up. Of course, I, I've got some real problems with what he's valorising, an institutionalised worldview, many-layered, built up over many centuries. Those in themselves are not terribly interesting. Slavery, for example, is an institutionalised worldview. It is a many-layered combination of beliefs. And its institutions have been built up over hundreds, nay, thousands of years. Shall we endorse that as well? I don't think so. So, uh, I get what he's getting at. Certainly, the Reformation has turned absolutes into relatives because people argue from their own point of view but maybe some of those absolutes needed to be challenged because maybe they were absolutely wrong. He says that the reformers agreed on sola scriptura. So much the more disconcerting then was the undesired result of their shared commitment. From the early 1520s, those who rejected Rome disagreed about what God's word said. And that is an enduring issue for Protestantism. It has resulted, he says, in hyper-pluralism, pluralism taken to an extreme, and the unplanned self-marginalisation of theology via doctrinal controversy with respect to modern philosophical and scientific discourse about God and natural world. In other words, theology's gone out the window as a way of conversing, as a way of understanding, and Protestant Reformation accidentally did that by making it so controversial we go, well, we're never going to agree on that. Let's, let's look for something else by which we can explain the world. And he says it's ultimately led to modern-day relativization of all religious truth claims. Ironically, the Protestant Reformation has triggered processes that have led to atheism, agnosticism, you know, uh, atheistic science, um, plus a whole range of religious manifestations that we might struggle with. 
such as modernist approaches to the Bible. In another chapter, he argues a very interesting thing. I must confess I never quite understood his argument. But he argues that the separation of church and state has been a very bad thing because what it's done is hand over control of the churches to the state. Now, of course, some states protect the churches by legislation. But any state that can protect a church can also attack a church. I'm not terribly comfortable with his alternative. Um, I am still rather a fan of separation in church and state. Next, here I agree with him. Protestant Reformation has accidentally led to the subjectivization of morality. The removal of a central authority of the church has led to a proliferation of moral stances. You know, if it feels good, do it. If nobody else gets hurt, it's all right. Have you heard that kind of thing? Unfortunately, that is a result of the Protestant Reformation. Because if you say, people, think for yourselves, some people are going to think that. This one hurts. Generally, things hurt when they're true. He argues that Protestantism has accidentally led to the manufacturing, uh, to manufacturing the goods life, pun intended. He notes how Protestantism has promoted both capitalism and consumerism. And by the way, the biggest... I used to be a media lecturer. That's how I started my career, media and English. Do you know what the single biggest dangerous influence of the media is? It's not bad language, and it isn't violence, and it isn't sex. It's materialism. The media is most powerful when it agrees with our... No, when our values agree with it, and is least powerful when it disagrees with us. Most of us don't think violence is a way to solve problems. But media is overwhelmingly materialistic. It tells us if we just had this, if we just take that, we'll be better off. And by and large, unfortunately, the Protestant world isn't resisting that very hard. In fact, there are dimensions of the Protestant world that go, the more materialistic you are, the more you prove God has blessed you. I'm not sure which gospel they were reading, but it wasn't one of the four that I found. He also argues about secularising knowledge, and that is true too. An unintended consequence has been that knowledge has become a secular field. Religion has been removed from academia. The universities were by and large founded by the churches. They were staffed by the churches. But uh, now knowledge has become increasingly secular, and many universities that were founded by churches are now secular state institutions. And empiricism is the only way to true knowledge. You know, the concept that revelation might have something to tell us that we can't figure out for ourselves is not terribly acceptable in academia because God is not susceptible to empirical proof. Isn't that another argument that he's actually outside our universe? That he's greater than us? So, how shall I conclude? What are the implications for our church? There is and will remain an ongoing tension between the forces of change and the forces of stability. If there were no forces of change in the Protestant Reformation, it would never have happened and Seventh-day Adventism would never have emerged. We exist because Protestantism insisted 
that scripture and scripture alone was the basis of belief and that people should be allowed to read it and be convinced in their own minds. We wouldn't exist without it. What is the inevitable corollary of that? That other people have also read it and have disagreed with us and have headed in every direction of the compass. We must accept that. One of the striking things I find about God is his willingness to let us make mistakes. I mean, it would have been so easy in the Garden of Eden to stop Adam and Eve making a mistake, wouldn't it? It would have been so easy, but he has such respect for us as humans, as individuals, that he lets us make mistakes. And so, as an Adventist, philosophically, I find myself defending the right of people to be wrong. Because without it, I would not have the right to follow the word as I understand it. The forces of change are powerful in Protestantism. But left to themselves, they produce chaos. We need forces of stability as well. But since we disagree on the meaning of the one authority that we have, namely sola scriptura, how will we find the forces of unity? And that will be a constant challenge for every Protestant group, including Adventism. You know that historically Adventism resisted creeds. We were terrified of them. We were scared that this was the first step on the slippery road to becoming just another denomination that eventually lost its way. So much so that Jane Loughborough, in this very famous statement in the Review and Herald in 1861, he wrote, the first step of apostasy is to get up a creed telling us what we shall believe. The second is to make that creed a test of fellowship. The third is to try members by that creed. The fourth, to denounce as heretics those who do not believe that creed. And fifth, to commence persecution against such. Spare us from such a fate. It is a possibility though, right? It is a possibility and it is a choice that we need to make as Adventists. Third implication for Adventism, we seek cohesion. And we need cohesion. We cannot be effective if we allow the forces of evil to scatter us through division. What does that cohesion look like? Is it submission to an administrative authority? Is it cohesion to a set of statements? Is it a shared vision and calling from Christ as to our mission in the world? Each of those leads to different conclusions. I sincerely hope that what drives us is our shared commitment, our shared calling to the special mission that we have in these end times. The others are shortcuts. They're tempting. But they don't lead to good ends. Sometimes the longest road is the fastest road because the other roads don't get there. You know, if we believe in sola scriptura, 
we have incredible assurance and certainty in what we believe because it's the word of God. And simultaneously, we have tremendous humility in our understanding of it, recognising that we are merely humans being led by the Spirit in a progressive revelation of what he has to say. Do we know everything yet? No, we don't. Ellen White assures us of that. What we do know is we can hold on to the things we've discovered. Do we know them as deeply as we will? No, we don't. We need to press on. The early Adventists were terrified of becoming a church. They wanted to stay a movement. Our roots are in the seeker movement. Have you heard of the seeker movement? They're a loose group of people, largely growing out of the Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation, who refused to join any creed or denomination or group because they kept believing God had something new to show them. And we have emerged from that. Much of the language and theology, even the genealogies. I have a doctoral student currently researching this back home in Australia. Do you know, he's found patterns of surnames in the Adventist church that go back 400 years. And he can pinpoint the places that they lived in over 400 years and link them all together. And along with that comes distinctive vocabulary. Most of the vocabulary we think is distinctively Adventist is two, three, four hundred years old. We are standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before. It's always been a basic principle of the Advent movement. It's an underlying theme of the great controversy. So we have certainty in the word and we have humility in our understanding of it. It's always dangerous to propose a paper before you've actually done the research. And as an academic going to conferences, I don't know how many times a presenter's got up and gone, well, that's the title of my paper, but I've gone somewhere completely different. Because in the process of doing research, I mean, the whole point of doing research is to find out stuff we didn't know. Uh, in, the, in doing research, we discover things. And, and I did, in reading these two books closely, I realised there were other things these two gentlemen talked about that I thought we should talk about. So... On top of my title, here are some questions that I think we should ask. I don't wish to direct an answer. But first of all, should we revisit our approach to origins? I'm neither scientist nor theologian, but from what I've observed, as Protestant Adventists, we tend to approach it on the grounds that the evolutionists have chosen. What if we went back to the early Christian church and said, you can explain everything in creation, you scientists, you still won't have uncovered or eliminated the creator. You hear what I'm saying? Philosophically, we might be on difficult territory at the moment. And the, the typical conflict between uh, literal creationists and scientific evolutionists is often... Very difficult ground for us to fight because we've handed them all the key cards. Here's an even more awkward one. Someone like Alistair McGrath has been an absolute champion of God in fighting the attacks of the new atheists on belief. 
Yet Alistair McGrath, as a Bible-believing Christian, is also an evolutionist. Is he an ally or is he an enemy? How do we approach this? That's tricky, isn't it? It's mind-blowing. But it's true. And as we've already heard, most of Protestant, most of Christianity doesn't have an inherent tension between evolution and their view of the Bible. So how do we approach that? Are we glad that they are doing their best to undermine atheism? And by the way, the aggressive atheists, the so-called four horsemen of atheism, of new atheism, they don't merely say Christianity is wrong, they say it is so evil it ought to be banned. They say Christians ought, literally, they say Christians ought to be killed for believing because their ideas are so evil, they're like an infection. Are we grateful for men like Alistair McGrath who pull the rug out from under their feet? Or are we desperately disturbed that, where do they stand on creation? It's a dilemma. How will we respond? On the 500th anniversary of Luther's spark that shook the world, it is an apt time to reflect on its legacy. Its legacy both of faith and of challenge to us. Most of the things in the world that we hate are a result of the forces that allowed us to be. Isn't that ironic? The Reformation is a license for change? Yes. And aren't we grateful that the Reformation made it possible for us to discover the truths of God's Word? To have the courage to change. Is it a recipe for chaos? Yes. And the challenge for us as Adventists is to find that certainty in God's Word and yet the humility in our approach to each other that we can continue to advance the mission that God has called us to without tearing ourselves apart. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.